from RNZ Pacific, Mikoroi Hawkins. Coming up first... The people of Vanuatu are very, very resilient. We are the most disaster-prone country in the world, according to the World Bank. Vanuatu lashed by two cyclones in two days and an earthquake. Um, so this is the FLNKS making a statement that the decolonization issue is still alive. The future political status of the French territory of New Caledonia could be determined this weekend and later on. Timing is everything. Time is a healer. I could have released the book much earlier, but there's too much at stake. A veteran Papua New Guinean general pitches Hollywood his account of the Sandline crisis during the Bougainville Civil War. In the space of two days this past week, Vanuatu was lashed by two tropical cyclones named Judy and Kevin and rocked by an earthquake. Judy, a severe Category 4 system at its peak with winds gusting to 230 kilometres an hour, tore through the Pacific Island country on Wednesday and Thursday. Then on Friday, when this programme was recorded, Cyclone Kevin was lashing the country as an intensifying Category 3 storm with winds already gusting up to 185 kilometres per hour. Caleb Fotheringham has more. One cyclone down, an earthquake in between, and now Category 3 cyclone Kevin is battering the Pacific Island nation. Prime Minister Ishmael Kalasakau declared a state of emergency for areas in Vanuatu impacted by severe tropical cyclone Judy. Mr Kalasakau says the Council of Ministers met yesterday where he approved the request by the National Disaster Committee. I'm pleased to announce that the Council of Ministers has met this afternoon and it has approved a request from the National Disaster Committee to ask the President of the Republic of Vanuatu to declare a state of emergency for the islands that have been highly affected and impacted by Tropical Cyclone Judy, effective this evening. This morning, Port Vila journalist Dan McGarry says the country's second biggest city, Luganville, was feeling the impact of Kevin. He says the longer it takes to reach Port Vila, the worse it will be for the country's capital. There's anticipation that a lot of the debris that was knocked to the ground by Cyclone Judy will be picked up again and thrown around. So we're anticipating a little bit of additional danger from today's cyclone. Mr McGarry says Cyclone Judy has caused widespread but moderate damage and there has been no news of injuries. Chief of Vanuatu's UNICEF office, Eric Dupier, says about half the population has been affected. What we can see around is that three branch roofs have been destroyed. I just got a report that the newborn room in the Vanuatu uh, Central Hospital, uh, the roof has slid away and uh, I mean that's the type of things we have uh, reported. Mr Dupier says gardens were destroyed and the country's food security was at risk. He says Cyclone Judy left some of the northern islands largely unaffected, which could have assisted the rest of the country with food supplies. But if the second cyclone is also destroying garden and uh, agriculture in, in other islands, it will be a real challenge in the coming weeks and months. The country director for World Vision Vanuatu, Kendra Deraso, says the country will definitely be seeking international help. Given the damage that I can see here in Port Vila and the fact that another cyclone is coming, 
I anticipate that they will be calling on their government partners as well for additional relief. And World Vision Vanuatu will also be working with the Australian and New Zealand governments to uh, secure funding. Meanwhile, the southern islands, Tana and Iramango, which are expected to be worse hit by Judy, remain unreachable. Aucklander Greg Watt, who used to split his time between Tana and New Zealand, is feeling anxious about the situation. Given that Judy was a direct hit on Tana, and it looks like Kevin is also going to be a direct hit on Tana, it's not looking great. However, Mr McGarry says the people of Vanuatu have been through bigger cyclones in the past and will get through this one. But it doesn't mean it's easy. The people of Vanuatu are very, very resilient. We are the most disaster-prone country in the world, according to the World Bank, and we're living up to our reputation this year. The National Disaster Office has indicated no assessments of damage will be undertaken until Cyclone Kevin has gone, but the government has already requested France to provide military aircraft for reconnaissance. For the latest news on Cyclone Kevin, visit our RNZ Pacific website at rnzi.com. The beginnings of a future political direction for New Caledonia could be unearthed in Numea this weekend. The French Interior Minister, Gerald Damana, is in the territory meeting with both loyalist and pro-independence groups. I spoke with Nick McClellan, a senior journalist, island's business contributor and long-time writer on New Caledonian politics about the visit. And I began by asking him about the significance of an FLNKS Congress held in the lead-up to Damana's visit and the symbolism behind the location where they chose to hold it. The Congress of uh, Independence Activists in New Caledonia was held in uh, Ansvata, which is a beachside suburb in the south of the capital, Numia. It's quite significant in that the southern suburbs are very much the home of the wealthy elite in uh, the New Caledonian capital. And they uh, it's very much taking the argument to the heart of uh, the anti-independence uh, uh, bastion. Um, the southern suburbs have traditionally been uh, supported, uh, voters there have supported uh, anti-independence uh, conservative parties. Um, so this is the FLNKS making a statement that um, even after three referendums on self-determination between 2018 and 2021, that the decolonization issue is still alive. Now, we we had that last referendum, obviously the boycott um, and then sort of no dialogue. This is a significant week, is it not, for the next step, so to speak, with engagement from the Canac side? France's overseas minister, Gérard Damana, arrives uh, later this week uh, for discussions with uh, all political parties in New Caledonia. Um, both he and uh, his uh, assistant, Jean-Francois Carinko, visited New Caledonia last year but those talks were essentially boycotted by the Canax Socialist National Liberation Front, the main coalition of independence parties, and other key independence supporters. Um, the FLNKS remains angry about the way that France pushed through the December 2021 referendum, um, which, as you say, saw a massive uh, non-participation by uh, pro-independence supporters, particularly Indigenous Canac. They've also expressed concern that France is uh, considering rolling back many of the key achievements of the Namira Accord. That's the 1998 agreement, which is basically the framework agreement, which has operated for nearly a quarter of a century 
um, and set uh, up the political institutions that today govern New Caledonia. Um, the talks later this week will be a crucial dialogue, therefore, between the independence movement and uh, the overseas minister. But it was also a time for the independence movement to come together. There are many different parties, uh, different organisations, trade unions, church supporters. Um, to forge one common position has been a long-standing difficulty. Uh, this was a really important meeting to develop a common voice to take into these crucial negotiations with the French state. And is there a sense that they did manage to forge uh, a united voice coming out of it? Very much so. The main coalition, the FLNKS, includes four parties, uh, Union Caledonian and Palika, the party of Kanak Liberation, are the two largest. But there are many other pro-independence formations outside the FLNKS, including the Labour Party and the USTKE Trade Union Confederation, uh, which has been pro-independence for many decades. There are many supporters of independence in the Église Evangelique, the main uh, Protestant denomination in New Caledonia, and other smaller political formations that want to see a change in political status, indeed want to see a sovereign and independent nation. What was striking was these uh, groups all came together at the Congress, uh, as well as the main parties in the FLNKS, and they've established a coordinating committee, the Comité Stratégique Indépendantiste, uh, which will bring together um, different formations who are all in support of independence uh, going forward with talks with the French state. That's very crucial because um, the French government uh, says that after the three referendums held under the Numia Accord, um, the self-determination process is coming to an end. Now, the FLNKS obviously disagrees with that. And indeed, um, neighbouring Melanesian countries also disagree with that. And that was highlighted by the presence at the Congress uh, last weekend of the Director General of the Melanesian Spearhead Group, Leonard Loma. Now, um, despite the restrictions on voting rules, is it fair to say that Canucks are either close to or are outnumbered in terms of the 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 French versus indigenous Kanak populations in actuality in the territory? After generations of migration and settlement um, from France and from other French dependencies, particularly Wallace and Futuna and Tahiti, um, indigenous Kanaks uh, are a minority in the population, a significant minority, over 40% of the population. Um, but they've always had to seek support from people from other uh, communities in order to achieve a majority in any referendum on uh, political status. Um, although there hasn't been a, a breakthrough, it was clear from the 2018 referendum that the Evelyn case did much better than people were expecting, winning 43% support for independence. The next vote in 2020 uh, was 46%, so there's certainly momentum towards a majority. Uh, and that's why there was such anger when France pushed through the 2021 referendum in the middle of the pandemic and saw a massive drop-off of participation. Um, you know, most Indigenous Kanak, most independent supporters just didn't go to the polls. Um, France's Council of State says it was a valid vote. However, politically, uh, it's clear that it's not. If the colonised people, the Indigenous Kanak, didn't in, weren't involved in this self-determination process. Um, international opinion says very clearly from the United Nations and indeed from the Political Alliance Forum that this lacked credibility and legitimacy. 
And that's the battle that's being played out at the moment. The remaining question, though, is the deadline of elections uh, for May 2024. The local provincial assemblies and National Congress must hold their uh, five yearly elections. Previous elections under the Namir Accord have been held under a restricted electoral roll, meaning only long-term residents, people there since 1998, um, can vote. Now, that's meant that some 40,000-plus French nationals who are eligible to vote for the French National Assembly, the French Senate, the European Parliament, can't vote for their local political institutions. Anti-independence parties are wanting to unfreeze, to open up this electoral roll so that these tens of thousands of French nationals can vote for the local Congress, the local provincial assemblies. Not surprisingly, the independence movement is deeply opposed to that reform. And this is one of the central issues facing uh, the French overseas minister when he arrives uh, in coming days. Always a pleasure, Nick. Thank you so much for insights and clarity on a very complex political situation. I uh, appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Karoy. Cleanup and recovery efforts are ongoing for parts of New Zealand's North Island, particularly the worst-hit regions of Hawke's Bay, Tairawhiti and Auckland. A while ago, we brought to you the story of how Cyclone Gabriel left hundreds of Pacific RC workers in Hawke's Bay homeless, resorting to take shelter in various church halls and community centres. Today, they're back on their feet, returning to work and relocating to safe accommodation. However, the weather event and rebuild has come at a cost to people's mental well-being. Susanna Suisuiki has the story. All safe and accounted for. Those were the words from the New Zealand government to describe the Pacific RAC workers in Hawke's Bay post-cyclone Gabriel. What wasn't anticipated, however, was the scale of trauma present among the workers. Since last week, the Pacifica Medical Association's medical assistance team have been on the ground in Hawke's Bay responding to the urgent health needs for over 500 RSC workers. The floods have left a lot of workers with skin infections and respiratory issues. Pacifica Medical Association CEO Debbie Sorensen says workers have also become anxious since the cyclone. Anxiety about their jobs. Will they still have a job? Um, because And it's not universal, you see, and anywhere. Um, So one orchard, for example, might be totally devastated and the one next door might be fine. So uh, a lot of initial anxiety about what happens now. Um, Will I get paid as a worry? Jumping straight into action to house hundreds of displaced RSC workers were church members who also provided pastoral support. However, church leader Charles Falitutsulu says although the cyclone is gone, it has left the community more on edge. Napier is a a different place now. I guess, um, you know, some some people are unable to get back into their normal routines. You know, I guess now we live in that, with that mindset that you know any time uh, we could just be wiped away. Taylor Crichton from Samoa, who's been working in New Zealand for over a year, says when Cyclone Gabriel hit, he and his group of workers grabbed as much as they could and fled. Mr Crichton says he's thankful none of the RSC workers were killed and he's determined to move past the trauma. Last couple of days ago, since the cyclone was happening, was feeling uncertain. He was thinking of uh, what's the next step, also the, for the points here. But uh, right now, we're doing good. The Pacifica medical team will continue to remain in Hawke's Bay. Another team has recently been deployed to Wairoa. Ms Sorensen says they are finding, as they have always known, that resilience is ingrained in Pacific people. Even in these desperate times that seem quite dark some days over the last couple of weeks, we know that we'll prevail and will prevail because we have strong faith 
we have navigated our ways, our forefathers navigated across big oceans into the unknown and made a better life for ourselves. Four Papua New Guinea fishermen who were missing at sea for 21 days were found alive this week on the southeast coast of Port Moresby off the village of Domara. The men aged from 18 to 35 became lost on the 7th of February after they left Hanwabada on their 23-foot boat to go trawling. A relative of two of the fishermen and the coordinator of the search, Motulohia, says the men survived by eating drifting coconuts and catching fish before they were found by local fishermen. He speaks to Caleb Fotheringham about what happened. It was a thrilling moment to learn the outcome, a positive outcome that on the Monday morning at 5 a.m. that they were located at the east side of uh, Port Mosby, which is uh, the Domara village, a local village just in the central province. They obviously got found. How did they get found? From my brother's discussion we had, they had no more anchor on board, and they drifted all the way from Port Mosby to Alotau. Alotau is another province just north of Port Mosby, Milling Bay area. Then the southwesterly wind drifted them back again to central province side. And at the point, they couldn't memorize the days or the weeks that they had already drifted. Prior to being found, they went uh, on the reef, and then they used the motor, their own motor, since there was no anchor. They tied the motor and uh, threw it on the reef as an anchor. And they stayed there for five days, only on the fifth day that they were found early morning by the fishermen of the local village, Tomara. Did they know that they were outside that local village when they dropped their motor or anchor? Correct. The wise decision they had to do was once they were thrown into the reef side by the waves, if nothing was to be anchored, then they should have retreated back to the ocean again. So it was wise decision they made. So they were obviously out at sea for three weeks in total. How did they survive? They survived on uh, coconuts, dry coconuts that fell. They could see them, but the schools of fish, the tunas were swimming around them, and then they had to take the risk to swim to get those coconuts. Wow, so they were diving in the ocean and picking up these coconuts that just drifted yeah. past them. Yes, that's what they were doing. It was a very risky because many of the oceans in Papua New Guinea are shark-infested. What about fish? Did they catch any fish? They did, but we're not used to eating raw fish. Uh, but they did manage to cut some and put them and dry them up on the sun. To survive on water, they relied totally on the rain. So they feel that there was a 20-liter bucket and a 4-liter bucket. What condition are the men in now? When they were found by the villagers, they were pretty weak. My nephew, who was 18-year-old, was so weak. Eyes just turned yellow, and, but then uh, the villagers battered them with the hot water and gave them some soup and some 
dehydration fluids uh, like uh, sugar, tea, hot tea with a lot of sugar in it. So you yeah, sweeten to uh, rehydrate them again. So are they in Port Moresby at the moment just recovering? Correct, yes. We also did our part in taking them up to Port Moresby General Hospital. And they were given drips and uh, some medications too. Are they still in hospital now? We're released just yesterday, last night, so they're back with us now, uh, in good order now, and, you know, having a chat with family and, you know, that's something positive out of it. And how are the, all the family feeling? They must be over the moon. <laughs> Overwhelmed. Some of them have been suffering for the three weeks without proper meals, just been worried for them to return home, their loved ones, especially us immediate families were overjoyed. They could wake up uh, till early morning and two o'clock for us to receive us. The village was all packed with people. There was the very early hours. Were the men quite emotional when they arrived back in their village? It all started when my other cousins that went up. It started there. The boys were just overjoyed like they saw us and started weeping openly and they showed their true emotions. And then when we took them to the village, it, and, you know, everybody were overjoyed. The tears of joy was just flowing freely and everybody were overwhelmed. Was there ever any doubt that the men would not return safely? I had every faith. I never gave up hope. In all circumstances, in all situations, we kept praying and we kept believing that the only thing that we knew is that there were not wreckage or debris that were found. And we knew in our faith and our heart that they were still drifting. And we knew we believed in that. And then the Defense Force also, the National Maritime Safety Authority, too, they spoke to me, giving assurance that uh, no wreckage has been found. So they believe they might be still floating. So what happened in the first place? How did they go missing? They were fishing. They already encountered the monsoon with the strong winds that blew. And they struggled a bit because uh, they had a spark plug. The motors have two spark plugs. They had a plug uh, malfunctioned, so it was not working at that time. Only one, so the consumption of the fuel increased. And that's how that the fuel just uh, finished rapidly. That's the time that they couldn't do much, so they were drifting. Did they say what it was like during the monsoon out at sea? Through their experiences as a fisherman, they felt the fear in them that, you know, it's about time, but they never gave up hope. Are the fishermen going to get back out in the water, do you think? <laughs> Definitely, brother. That's their livelihood, man. But every incident, there has to have the outcomes of learning. From those learning, it also goes to the national level that a small boat craft uh, acts that needs to be reviewed, I believe, for GPS to be installed, some uh, photo uh, sanitaries. These are victims in the shipping that they use for life-saving apparatus, equipments that can be used as a life-saving 
in cases of emergencies or yeah, rescues for identification. In 1997, the Papua New Guinea government tried to bring in mercenaries to replace the defence force in the then eight-year-long civil war in Bougainville. But the commander of the PNG Defence Force at the time, Major General Jerry Singerok, led the army in opposition to the government plan in an operation called Rausim Quick and forced the Sandline mercenaries out of the country. The general's defiance cost him his military career, caused the collapse of the Sir Julius Chan government and helped hasten the end of the civil war. Major General Singerok published his account of the affair, a matter of conscience, Rausim Quick, last year. And late last month, he was in Hollywood, pitching the book to filmmakers. Don Wiseman talked to the former general about his Hollywood trip, but began by asking what prompted the book after all this time. Timing is everything. Time is a healer. I could have released the book much earlier, but there's too much at stake. The whole country was divided because they've never heard of a, of a military general in Papua New Guinea defying uh, executive government orders. And when I did what I did in 97, the whole government agencies put all their resources to send me to jail. So you can understand, I think timing was the greatest factor. I had all the, most of my documents, evidences available, but I had to vie for time until I thought it was right for me to uh, release my book. What was the key thing that you wanted to achieve in doing so? The reason why I wrote this book is that we needed to leave a, a record behind because there's less lack of documentation in Papua New Guinea to record and document history. The memory of a country is quite short if there's no documentation. It's like a fairy tale. And the Bougainville crisis is the one of those significant crises that changed the course of the country because it ran for nearly 10 years. And it it just put a lot of thematical issues at play, politics, bad government, corruption, corporate greed. I mean, you just need to read the book to understand the, the complexity and the, the dynamics of, of, uh, of my writing to appreciate that the military component is one aspect, but the military is well and truly entwined into all these various aspects of, uh, of a nation. It's important to note that I'm well-trained and educated. I'm a fair guy. It's important that when I was appointed commander of the PNGF, the whole country relied on my on my credibility, my integrity, my standing as a, as a military officer so that I'm able to, to carry out the constitutional requirement that's expected of the commander to perform. So I'd like to believe that uh, I was properly appointed as a commander at the material time. Uh, so it's important that I document something. If I if I don't, who else in my position will document so that one day the generation, the next generation Papua New Guineans will learn from the mistakes that we've done. And the second issue is that uh, Papua New Guinea governments were prepared to uh, engage the military in a civil situation where nobody's accountable for the killings of civilians, innocent civilians who are not armed. I mean, you couldn't define what a militia force is, so it was a typical guerrilla warfare, but 
it needed officers and men with who are who are quite what will I say uh, quite intelligent in their decision making. It's not a battlefield per se. We're dealing with uh, peace enforcement and, and and managing peace. So if there's any, so uh, it's important for me to document that, Don. All right, and as you say, people can learn it all by reading the book or there may be a chance of them seeing a Hollywood movie of it because you've been in Hollywood pitching this story to uh, Hollywood execs. And how did that go? Yeah, I just, I mean, there's a lot of uh, misconception about my trip to Hollywood. I just want to set the record straight. The publishing company that assisted me to publish the book is called Auto Solutions. It's based in uh, Indiana in USA. Now, they took my book along with many other books that they published to the Miami Book Book Fair last year in November. And amongst many, many authors, global authors who uh, put their books on display, mine was singled out by Auto Solution as one of the best contemporary books written by a real general, by himself, on events that impacted a nation. So my book was quite unique and singled out as a possible opportunity to do what is called book to screen. And uh, it withstood the elimination up until a very handful of uh, of books were identified for the uh, Beverly Hills uh, Hilton Hotel pitch. And that's how I was really, really privileged to be uh, an author. I'm a global author now, to be recognize my work so that it's, it has the potential to, to be converted into a movie. I pitched before seven agents or directors of big, big names in Hollywood. And within two weeks, I will know if my my book had, had basically withstood the assessment cri- criteria for engagement of a, of a movie company with me. How much confidence do you have that that'll go your way? It's still being subjected to analysis. There's a person that uh, John Saki is, is waiting for all the assessments to go through before they can officially inform me. But because I pitched seven times, and from those people I pitched to, they had so many questions. I mean, they, they were so eager to learn what operation roused him quick. And they're asking me, you uh, expelled, you kicked out the African missionaries in the Pacific in Papua New Guinea? I said, yes, I did. Is this real? You know, I mean, they can't believe that it happened. I mean, Sunland mercenaries are some of the most notorious mercenaries in Africa because they're offshoot of executive outcomes. Uh, Colonel Erin Barlow from South Africa, Pretoria, so you can understand the reputation that they have. Like I said, I quoted Sir Edmund Beck's uh, great saying, a quote, and, and I quote, all is necessary for triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing, end of quote. And we were good men. So I was the general commander at the time. I had very highly professional junior officers with me, and they, they believe in the cause. And, and we were committed to, to expel mercenaries so that we can make Papua New Guinea and the Pacific a uh, a, a more peaceful place to live in without um, African mercenary-style outfits in mining areas and resource-rich uh, provinces in Papua New Guinea. And briefly before we go, the Australian NRL season kicked off on Thursday night with 17 teams, including newcomers, the Dolphins. Christina Persico previewed the 2023 season. Rugby league is a favourite among sports fans in the Pacific region and this was only heightened during Tua Samoa's run to the World Cup final late last year. 
Samoa's international stars have dispersed to their respective clubs, including Junior Paulo to the Eels, Chanel Harris-Tavita to the Warriors, and Jerome Luai and Stephen Crichton at the two-time defending champions, the Panthers. Penrith are in action on Friday night against the Broncos, and Crichton is down to start at centre, Brian To'o on the wing, and Luai at 5'8". The Panthers could become the first team since 1983 to win three titles in a row, and co-captain Isaiah Yo told NRL.com there will be pressure to do so. Obviously, yeah, that's going to be surrounding us, I'd imagine, for the rest of the season. So, um, yeah, obviously looking forward to the challenge. The pressure was probably on the back of the 2020 grand final with loss and then being back there the 2021. So, um, look, I feel like we understand what it, what it takes to, to play well and play consistently throughout the season and give ourselves a chance at the back end of the year. But, um, yeah, like I just touched on then, it, it all start, starts round one. And I feel like what we've done over those those previous years, as much as you don't look to the past, is we, we prepare well every week and we respect the opposition every week. So, um, I'd like to think that doesn't change this year and um, it certainly certainly hasn't changed or hasn't looked like changing this week. Kicking off round one tonight are last year's finalists, the Eels, taking on the Melbourne Storm. Parramatta's Regan Campbell-Gillard says his focus shifted quickly after last year's final loss due to Australia's World Cup campaign. Probably because we went, went straight into camp straight away, so um, yeah, didn't really, really think about the grand final to be honest, so uh, yeah, kind of switched my focus to um, yeah, the World Cup and yeah, just haven't really really thought about it to be honest, so uh, another, year, another year for us and uh, yeah, another good, another good squad. Uh, with us this year, so um, yeah, we've got to make sure we're doing everything right to um, yeah, go that one step further. The other round one matchups are as follows the Warriors and the Knights, the Sea Eagles and the Bulldogs, the Cowboys and the Raiders, the Sharks and the Rabbitohs, Dolphins and Roosters, and the West Tigers taking on the Titans. As for the favourites to make the top eight at the end of the year, Sportsbet predictably has the Panthers, the Storm, and the Roosters on the list. But Rugby League can always throw up surprises, and there will be a lot of fans hoping that this is their year. That's Tangata Ote Moana for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Look at Mufala next time more.